Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. This particular podcast, for me at least, is something of a technological first, as it isn't being recorded face-to-face as is usually the case. Not only are we not in the same room, but we aren't even in the same country. My questions are being recorded here in Lancashire, with Ed Farrell's answers coming in from Ireland as WMA files via an internet drop box for me to cut together, balance and generally make ready for the site. So if you notice any difference between the two sound components, that's the reason why. It was either that, or miss out completely on passing forward a piece of information which needs to be as widely distributed throughout the sea angling scene as it's currently possible to do. Without any doubt whatsoever, the Smooth Hounds, or is it Smooth Hound, is the big population success story of the early part of the 21st century. From a northerly angling limit of Anglesey when I first started fishing, they've now spread up through Lancashire and Cumbria into Scottish waters. Not only that, the numbers also appear to be on the increase as well, and for as far back as I can remember, anglers have considered them as two completely separate species, one with white spots known as the starry smoothhound, the other without spots known as the common smoothhound. With the various national record fish lists, after consultation with their expert advisers, mirroring the dual speciation route. But, no longer the Irish. They in fact have merged the two into a single species which they simply refer to as the smoothhound, Mustellus asterius. The common smoothhound, Mustellus mustellus, has never appeared on their list. From 1981, when the smoothhound was first listed by the Irish, up to 2005, the schedule of specimen weights recorded only the starry smoothhound, Mustellus asterius, and from 2006 to 2009, only the smoothhound, without a specific scientific name, reflecting their uncertainty about species identification. In 2010, however, the Irish Committee were able to make the list more accurate, and reverted to listing the species as Mustellus asterius. In terms of bait requirements, presentation and distribution, so far as practical angling goes, there is absolutely no difference between the two varieties. And from a scientific perspective, it would be highly unusual in the extreme to have two almost identical and closely related species sharing exactly the same distribution and resources. Yet despite the Irish single species stance, British and Welsh fish recorders continue to stand firm on the two species argument, with the Scots not having to face this particular dilemma yet. The big question this raises has to be, who is right and who is wrong? Today's interview guest is Dr Ed Farrell, an Irish-based fisheries research scientist who for his PhD thesis at the University College Dublin took this particular bull well and truly by its horns and has come up with a definitive answer. But before revealing this, let's first look at some of the background and build up to this potentially groundbreaking research, the implications of which, as we will explore later, go far beyond the listing of names in a record list. So tell us a bit about your background, both as an angler as well as a fishery scientist, and how you became aware of, and ultimately involved in, this particular strand of fisheries research work. Hi Phil, thanks very much for inviting me to do this podcast. It's a great opportunity to make anglers aware of the project that I've been involved in, and also the surprising results that we got, which I'm sure many of them will be interested in. So a bit of background first. I'm originally from Dublin, and as far back as I can remember, I always loved fishing. When I was younger, I mainly fished in freshwater, and I spent a lot of time down in the River Shannon, which is the longest river in Ireland. So we'd be fishing for pike and perch and really anything that we could get. 
Um, but then in the past 10 years, I've kind of moved more into sea angling and fishing on the East Coast. We've mainly been fishing for smooth hounds and taupe and then some flatties and other whitefish that you can get. And then anytime I'm over on the West Coast, over in Galway or down in Cork, I'd be fishing mainly for bass and really anything else that I could get over there, like uh, wrasse as well, or one of my favorites. So it was this interest in fishing and all things marine that spurred me on to do a Bachelor of Science in Zoology with the ultimate aim of going down the route of marine biology. And I did that at University College Dublin. So I spent four years studying there. And I was always fascinated by sharks as well. And always had always kept reading about them and had a real keen interest in watching anything on TV and sharks. So after finishing my BSc, I spent some time in South Africa assisting on a research project on Great Whites. And as you can imagine, that was enough to get me completely hooked on sharks and really made me want to pursue studying sharks as a career. So I came back to Ireland eventually, um, and I started looking for funding to do my own project, and also a supervisor to take me on. And luckily, that was before the, the Irish economy collapsed, so there was plenty of funding around at the time, which was great. And I managed to find two supervisors willing to work with me, as Dr. Stefano Mariani in UCD and Dr. Morris Clark in the, the Marine Institute in Galway. Now, there's such a huge range of shark and skate species around our coast, most of which we know very little about. So initially it was quite difficult to pin down a specific question for our project. Then we started discussing smoothhounds, and they're quite an unusual species. We knew almost nothing about their, their actual life history and their biology, but all the survey data was showing that they were increasing in abundance in the northeast Atlantic. Now that's very unusual for any species to be increasing in abundance when really most species are going in the opposite direction due to fishing pressure. Although when we dug a little deeper into smoothhounds, we noted that even though they were increasing in abundance according to surveys, their commercial landings were also increasing, and they were mainly landed into France, and there was no management plan for the fishery and no data to base a management plan on. So really, the original proposal was to study the life history of both the starry smoothhound and the common smoothhound, and hopefully use the, the data that we got from that to help develop some kind of management plan for them to ensure that they'd continue to be around. And it was really only when I started examining smoothhounds in really large numbers that I realised I had some difficulty in telling which species I was actually dealing with. As someone who's gone down the university fisheries research route myself, I know that while you might have had a single primary objective in mind, in this case, the definitive answer I referred to earlier, the final outcome is never guaranteed to be as anticipated, and always there will be other questions to answer, as well as threads to be tweaked at along the way. What then was your initial research aim, and how did you hope to achieve its outcome? So as I mentioned, the initial aim of the project was to study the life history of this, both species of smoothhound and to figure out, let's say, the growth rate, the age of maturity, the reproductive biology, all those important characteristics that we could then use to go and develop a management plan for them. But it was only when I started examining large numbers of smoothhounds that I realised there was a problem. Apart from the variation in the spots, there seemed to be no difference between what I was being told were starry and common smoothhounds. It also seemed very strange that there would be two species occupying the same niche. So by that I mean that there are two species living in exactly the same area and eating the same food. And that just doesn't make biological sense. If there were different species, then there should be a difference in how they were using the environment. Otherwise, one would just cancel out the other and there'd be too much competition between them for the limited resources. And really, if I couldn't be sure what species I was dealing with, then I couldn't make any progress in studying the life history. So the identification really became a priority early in the study. 
So to find the answer, I had to go back to basics and look at the relationship between the two species. So just a little bit about this, and bear with me here, it's kind of a little bit technical and to do with taxonomy. So the starry smoothhound and the common smoothhound are both members of the Mustelis genus. And that globally, there's about 27 closely related species in this Mustelis genus. And they all have a similar body shape, and all 27 are what we call viviparous. And that means they give birth to live, free-swimming young, rather than laying egg cases like the, the lesser spotted dogfish. But the 27 Mustela species can be divided into two groups based on whether or not they form a placental connection with their pups. Now the evidence that we have at the moment suggests that this division may also be reflected in the coloration pattern on the shark's skin. And by that I mean the white-spotted smoothhounds, like the starry smoothhound, do not form a placental connection, whereas the unspotted smoothhounds, like the common smoothhound, do form a placental connection. And that may seem like a big distinction, so it should be easy to, to separate species. But, as you most anglers probably know, the white spots of the starry smoothhound are highly variable in appearance. So they can be vivid and well-defined, they can be faint, or they can even be absent. So this variation, it's, it's also seen in many other white-spotted smoothhounds around the world. So it seems to be a common feature of that group of species. Now the problem arises when people see a starry smoothhound with either very faint spots or without any spots at all. They automatically assume that it's a common smoothhound, just because this is what they've always been told and how it's always been done. And that's continuously thrown at them that that's how you identify the two different species. Now... Obviously, it's a common mistake these days, but I, went, I looked back into the old, old literature and I've identified cases of it happening for hundreds of years. So the most obvious and definitive way to tell the difference between the two species is by dissecting a pregnant female and looking at the connection between the mother and the pups. So if it's a common smoothhound, there'll be a placental connection. If it's a starry smoothhound, there'll be no placental connection. Obviously that only works for females, and also I wouldn't advocate anglers going around cutting up pregnant female smoothhounds, and I'm sure it's something they wouldn't want to do themselves anyway. So luckily there are a few other differences between the species. Like all sharks, the smoothhound skin is covered with small teeth-like features called dermal denticles. Now you'll know those if you rub your hand along a shark's skin and has that rough texture, that's the dermal denticles you're actually feeling. So the shape of these denticles and the pattern of ridges on the denticles varies between the species. But unfortunately, you need a microscope to see the difference. And it really doesn't work on live smoothhounds, so it's not very useful in the field or for anglers to use to identify the species. These denticles also extend into the mouth of the sharks, and they're in there they're known as bucopharyngeal denticles. So... Within the mouth, they form a different pattern between the two species. So in the starry smoothhound, the whole inside of the mouth is covered with these denticles, whereas in the common smoothhound, only the front portion of the mouth is covered with the denticles. Now, unfortunately, you can't really see this on a live specimen either, and you have to cut open the mouth. So again, not good for anglers, and really not useful at all. There's also a few external measurements which are thought to be useful to discriminate the species, such as the distance between the, the pectoral fins and the dorsal fins. But there's a big overlap in these. And most of the measurements that they're based on, the identification of the original specimens aren't definite and aren't known for definite. So we really can't be sure how useful those measurements are. So what I needed was a reliable, quick and a non-lethal method that I could use to identify large numbers of samples 
before I could really continue with studying the life history of the two species. So a genetic method seemed the obvious choice. All I needed from each smoothhound then was a very small piece of fin tissue, which wouldn't cause any harm to the smoothhound. So it was ideal for angler-caught samples also, and I didn't even have to take the sample myself. So an angler could just take, catch a smoothhound, take a little piece of fin off the, the trailing edge of the dorsal fin, send it over to me, and I'd be able to tell them what species it was. The actual development of the genetic method is quite technical, and it's not worth going into in excessive detail here. All the details are published, and they're there available on the internet anyway. But essentially, I just take a small piece of fin tissue, and within 24 hours, we can say whether it's a definite starry smooth end or a common smooth end. And we can also run a large number of samples at the same time, up to about 50 samples. So when I started running all the samples, all of them were turning out to be starry smooth ends, even those which had faint or no stars, which was a really surprising result for us. Now, although you are Dublin-based, the study was extended well beyond the Irish Republic shores to take in parts of the UK in an attempt to more fully investigate the situation at our latitude. And in that respect, you also did a lot of work with an old friend of mine, well, smoothhound specialist Gethin Owen, over at Hollyhead. Ensuring an adequate sample size is always an issue in these sorts of projects. It's not like working on dogfish, where I could basically go down to any beach or any shore anywhere and catch a bag full of dogfish, no problem at all. The smooth ends are a lot more difficult, but that's half their charm, I suppose. They're a challenge to catch. You need to get your bait presentation right. You need to choose the right time of the tide, choose the right area, all these sorts of variables. So for the life history analysis, I had to rely on fishery surveys and commercial discards to collect enough samples, because obviously these sharks, these smooth ends, had to be dead, and I had to extract their vertebrae to tell what age they were and also look at their reproductive biology. But to look at the identification issue, I needed a lot more samples. So I needed, I needed to turn to anglers, and they were as keen as I was to sort out this identification issue. So lots of them agreed to help me with taking samples of fin clips. And luckily, I managed to get in touch with uh, Gethin in Hollyhead, and he invited me aboard my way to take samples and also to tag smooth ends, which we were doing as well. I had a few great smooth end sessions out there in the boat, and it's definitely the place to go if you want to catch double-figure fish. The, the run of fish they get through there in May is just unbelievable, and most of them are large pregnant females. So it's important that we find out a little bit more about them, because that could be an important area where we have to conserve them and make sure that commercial fishing doesn't move into those areas. So in all, we managed to catch or to collect over 800 fin clips over four years, and that was from both sides of the Irish Sea, from the Celtic Sea, from west of Ireland, from the Bristol Channel, from the English Channel, from the North Sea, and from the northern Bay of Biscay. So we pretty much got samples from everywhere north of 46 degrees latitude. Now, about 10% of these samples had no spots and were initially identified as common smooth ends. Now, that figure probably would have been higher, except that I identified a lot of the samples myself. So I I knew instinctively that um, some of them were starry smooth ends. Anyway, regardless, after I ran the genetic identification test, every single one of those samples turned out to be starry smooth ends, which was, to say the least, a bit of a surprise. One thing you can always say about scientists is that regardless of how much data or how many specimen samples they have, it's never enough. They always want more. At what point then did you start to realise that your initial suspicions looked to be justified and ultimately, when did you feel you had enough data to publish with? After confirming that all the samples collected were starry smooth ends, I had to try and explain it. 
So where were all the common smoothheads? Was it a case of a, a recent local extinction of common smoothheads, or were they never, never present in the first place? So the first thing I did was go back to the old literature and dig even deeper than I had before. So there's some amazing resources available on the internet, such as the, the Biodiversity Heritage Library. And here you can find all sorts of old texts that have been, they've been scanned in, and these date right back, you know, 300 years. So you can really look back at the work that scientists have done previously and try and assess whether they were making mistakes back then, and maybe those mistakes were just being amplified as they've, they've moved through to the present day. So I tracked back through all that old literature, and that's exactly what I found. I found a load of confusion and lots of identification mistakes. And most of these were due to the, the use of the white spots for identification. So the early researchers were doing exactly what people are doing today. They were seeing a starry smooth end with faint or absent spots, and they were assuming that it was a common smooth end. Obviously, these early researchers didn't have the benefit of genetics to help them identify their samples. And most of them only had access to a very small number of samples because research wasn't as developed back then. Angling wasn't as developed, and even commercial fisheries weren't as developed. So really, they were only seeing a very small number of samples, and they had to make assumptions based on that. So after collating all this old data, basically we came up with the realisation that in the past 200 years or so, there's no reliable confirmed instances of the common smooth end north of Portuguese waters. Now obviously we couldn't just stop at looking at the historical literature, we also had to go and look at the historical samples, many of which are available in the natural history museums around the world. So I contacted the Dublin and Paris Natural History Museums and I managed to get in to see, examine their collections of smoothheads. So I was particularly interested in what they had in their collections that were listed as common smoothheads from the Northeast Atlantic. And I examined all these and again what I found was incorrectly identified specimens, incorrectly named specimens and really no conclusive evidence for common smoothheads from north of Portugal. Now that instance of the common smooth end in Portuguese waters, I should explain that, that's a paper by a, a French scientist from the 1970s where he vividly described the dermal denticles of the species and tooth morphology and really pinned down that there was a common smooth end, at least one sample anyway, from Portuguese waters. So that's the most reliable record we have and the furthest north reliable evidence of a common smooth end. And the results are... Ideally, we'd go and sample every smooth end in the Northeast Atlantic, but obviously that's impossible. So what we have is over 800 samples collected over four years from a very wide area of distribution. So we've covered all the areas where smooth ends occur, or where we know them to occur anyway, around Britain and Ireland. And in four years, in those 800 samples, we have no common smooth ends. And we also have no reliable historical evidence for their presence north of Portugal. And we've proved a very high level of misidentification, both historically and in the present day. So we have to assume the most simple explanation, which is that common smooth ends don't occur at this latitude. Now, the common smooth end does occur in the Mediterranean because we tested some samples from there. And it does occur also in South African waters. Possibly their range just doesn't extend this far north into our waters. And this is absolutely conclusive. It's hard to be absolutely conclusive about something like this because we can't sample every single, every single smoothhound in the Northeast Atlantic. But basically, there's as much evidence for great whites around Ireland and Britain as there is for common smoothhounds. 
Now, the conditions in our waters may be suitable for the species, but they just don't seem to occur here. That's not to say that they won't in the future. Perhaps with warming sea temperatures, maybe they'll push further north, or that you might get the occasional vagrant coming smooth and straying in from further south. But until there, there is actual evidence of the common smoothhound, we should say that they're absent. But continues to sample any unspotted starry smoothhounds, just in case. That would be the ideal scenario anyway. Yet still the various record fish committees outside of Ireland go forward with the blinkers on. That being the case, what would you like to say to them? I don't really know enough about the other committees and how they work to comment on them. But all I can say is that the Specimen Fish Committee in Ireland, they've been very forward-thinking over the past number of years, and they've set a very good example of embracing new scientific developments. And there's a number of projects that they were working on with the, the Fish Biology Lab in UCD for the identification of a number of different species, both saltwater and freshwater. And they've also removed the need for whole bodies of a number of species to be presented to claim a specimen, which is great. You know, we're, we're getting away from the days where you'd go down to the pier and all the bodies of the sharks would be laid out in the pier and then they'd just be dumped afterwards. That's certainly a thing of the past. And you can now claim, for the most part, claim a specimen or claim a record based on measurements and based on photos and even a fin clip, as the case is for smooth hands. So these conservation-minded approaches, they should stand as a good example to the other committees. And it's certainly something that they should think about getting involved in. Having read your paper on the subject and looked at some of the backup evidence, it's clear that there are other equally interesting and in some cases very important additional strands that have come from your work, particularly with the DNA. So tell us a little bit more about that. Well, when we developed the genetic test, we also factored in the fact that smooth ends are often landed together with taupe in mixed boxes. Now, they get skinned shortly after being landed, at which point they're almost impossible to tell apart, particularly if the tail has been cut off. Also, some people uh, misidentify small taupe as smooth hands, so we had to be sure that all the samples that we were getting were actual smooth hands and not taupe. As you know, taupe are now protected in UK, but smooth hands aren't, so the identification test might also be useful for fishery scientists who are looking at the landings and maybe checking up for illegal landings of taupe. The Smoothhound project has been completed and written up for well over a year now, in which time you've obviously moved on to other things. And I know that you've been extremely busy with these new projects, hence the difficulty in pinning you down for long enough to record this interview. Tell us then a bit about what the present and the future holds for Ed Farrell, and what, if any, might be the implications of ongoing or future studies for angling. Well, at the moment I'm working on a project on a species called boarfish. It's a small pelagic shoaling species. They only get to about 18 centimetres long and they're, they're bright orange. They look like a, a mini bright orange John Dory. But these have been increasing in abundance off the south and west coasts of Ireland uh, for the last 10 to 15 years. And just in the last three years, a big industrial fishery has developed for them. Now, landings were increasing in this fishery, but they had no... They had no management plan in place for it and no idea of the biology of the species. So they drafted me in then to do a, a study on the biology. So we were looking at the, the reproduction of the species and collaborating with some colleagues in Denmark to looking at the aging of the species. So that's mainly what I've been doing for the last year. And at the moment, we're producing a fisheries assessment for the species. So hopefully there'll be management brought in next year just so we can ensure that it's sustainable for the future. Also, at the same time, I'm collaborating on a project on poor beagle tagging, which is very exciting. And we just managed to secure funding for some satellite tags for the poor beagles. So hopefully I'll be you know, 
putting those tags on the sharks now and then in the coming months and we'll be able to track those. So we're going to be updating those positions of those tracks on the Irish Elasmobank group website. So that should be great and it'll allow me to get out and do some fishing at least. Sounds good. Though I don't suppose you have much time these days for leisure angling. No, unfortunately I haven't had a lot of time for angling this summer. But I hope to get out in September time when things calm down because I've been out on fishery surveys during the summer and it's just been incredibly busy. But I'll get down to Cork hopefully in September now and do some bass fishing. Uh, so that should be good. And then hopefully, as I was saying, about tagging the poor beagles. So really looking forward to that. In the angling in Ireland, there's incredible potential for it, but it's quite underdeveloped compared to uh, England, let's say. Really, there's some great charter boats around the place. And just because we're perched right out on the, the edge of the continental shelf, there's some incredible fishing off the west coast. All a range of species, everything you can possibly imagine. And you can go out for deeper water species. You can go further offshore and get tuna, sharks, even the, the actual coastline itself, fishing from the shore. Really, you can go out to any shoreline and there'd be very few people there. And you might have a whole beach to yourself or a whole cliff face to yourself where you can fish from. So it's, it's well worth taking a trip over and exploring. It's, a lot of it is still unexplored and there's definitely new spots and new marks like, to be found. So looking forward to doing some of that now in the future. No thoughts then of doing a similar project with, say, the two anglerfish species, Lophius piscatorius and Lophius budigasa, to try to sort out which one it is that anglers are most likely to catch, and which, in fact, is the holder of the current record. I don't know very much about the anglerfish, really, apart from the few I've seen out on fisheries surveys, and you can get some real monsters, things that weigh in about £100, like absolute massive fish. Um, as far as I know, you can tell the difference pretty easily by looking at what we call the peritoneum. So that's the lining of the body cavity. So in Lophius piscatorius, it's a, a pale lining, so it's kind of white, creamy color. And in Lophius budigasa, it's a, a black lining. That's why it's known as the, the black-bellied anglerfish. So I'm not sure if you're able to see that lining now when the fish is alive, because obviously on surveys they do tend to come up dead. But it's definitely worth looking into. And even uh, looking around for some of the, the scientific literature on the internet, you know, you might unveil some really interesting studies out there on the species. Apart from the obvious results of the Smooth Hen project about the identification issues, there was also some very interesting findings about the, the life history of the species. So once we confirmed that all the specimens we were dealing with were starry smooth hens, we were just able to concentrate our efforts on starry smooth hens alone. And we found out that the age of maturity of males in the northeast Atlantic, the age and length of maturity I should say, is four to five years and about 78 centimeters and for females that's six years and 87 centimeters so they actually take quite a number of years to to mature now the previous estimates were only two and a half years so they're a lot slower growing than we previously thought now there is some old studies on the reproduction of the starry smoothhound in the mediterranean and in the Mediterranean, the females gave birth to quite a large number of pups every year, so on an annual basis. Now, what we discovered in the Northeast Atlantic is that the females actually only give birth every two years. So when they get pregnant, the gestation period is 12 months, so about 12 months. So it takes about 12 months before they give birth to their pups, after which they have to have a 12-month resting period. So it's, they can only, it's a really, a, the reproductive cycle is really 24 months long, which makes them not very productive at all. And so they're probably a bit more vulnerable to commercial fishing pressure. 
And as I said, the, the commercial landings of smooth, starry smooth ends, well, smooth ends in general, but what we know to be starry smooth ends now in the Northeast Atlantic have been increasing for the last number of years. And they're mainly landed into France, up around Brittany, into Lorient, and all those ports around there. And they're up at about 2,500 tons a year, which is a significant amount when you think about it. So definitely, or hopefully anyway, the results from the project uh, should go some way towards creating or highlighting the vulnerability of the species up here. And also then maybe towards the development of uh, some kind of management plan in the future. Well, that's my ideal goal for them anyway. I'd like the, the results to be used in some way to benefit the species anyway. With regard to smooth end speciation then, I have to say that what you've presented is a pretty conclusive case. Watertight in fact and one which is going to be very hard for the Record Fish Committees to justifiably resist. So with that in mind, I intend to send a copy of this interview to each of them, just to be sure that the evidence hasn't passed them by. My thanks then to Ed Farrell for explaining his research to us here, though I'm not confident of past history about the pace at which any resulting action based on the findings is ultimately going to be taken. (laughs) 